Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Well, we are continuing our Songs I Can't Stop Singing series, and that was a song by Coldplay, and they did it better than Coldplay did. They really did that well. Very good. So I have a few reflections I want to start with from this past few weeks to kind of roll us into our topic today. The first one has to do with the baptism that took place a few weeks ago. I continue to think about the eight people who were baptized down at the river uh, on that night a couple of weeks ago. And in particular, the picture they represented, a community of difference, as we sometimes uh, use the phrase around here. Children, someone in their 20s, and older people, this value of people uniting under the leadership and guidance of Jesus. And it was on vivid display at our baptism. And making it the most perfect evening of all baptisms, the sound went out right when we were in the middle of singing. But we continued to worship God. It was a rather cool event just to see the sound go and hear the sound go, and no one missed a beat. We just continued to worship God. There was a sweetness to the evening I simply can't explain in terms of why it was so sweet. But the beauty of the body of Christ that night was vivid. And the baptism to make it even to be down at the river that night, people outside the church who were both curious and at the same time frustrated by our presence there and by our actions. Second reflection has to do with our mid-year offering. Uh, and by way of update, the amount we were looking for, or not looking for, but the cost of all the sound and all that stuff uh, turned out to be around $90,000. We were thinking we'd get thirty. It turned out we had 64000 come in, which is just an amazing uh, display. If I understand it right, the new system will be in in the next couple of weeks. So I want to say... One more thank you for your sacrifice and for your giving and this sense of togetherness and what happens when we join together. But it also points to this, this goodness that we continue to experience as a church, experiencing and in the opportunities we have as a church to continue to discern the moving of God's spirit among us and the risks we can take together and the work we can do together. And creatively think about how to be the church. What does that look like? What does that mean in the midst of the unique culture we are now living in? Third reflection has to do with the sense of team. The last few weeks, different people have had the chance to speak and teach on Sunday mornings. And I've heard how great it has been, how refreshing it has been to hear from other voices and to hear their perspective on the kingdom of God and on what Jesus is stirring up in them. And this points to the importance of team and togetherness and community in a way that I hope we are is not dependent on any single one of us. And different voices shape us in ways one single voice cannot shape us. God works among us through one another. We are priests, to use Peter's word. We are priests to one another. 
And so every person who considers Oak Hills their church is a minister for the sake of the rest of us. We humbly serve one another and we humbly serve the world. So it is things like baptism. It is things like this Jesus-centered community. It is things like unity, even though we have all sorts of differences. And it is things like the shaping influence of God's word as we turn to it each week that cultivate, however slowly and always imperfectly, where people who are different in every way you can imagine come together in unity under the leadership and under the guidance of Jesus. And I believe this is how Christians are to respond to today's world and to today's culture. We respond, in other words, by demonstrating the reality of the risen Christ in us and among us. He shapes us in love and sacrifice. And so by offering the culture a compelling alternative. And this is why this Coldplay song is today's song. Now, it would be untrue. It would be a flat-out lie for me to say to you, I can't stop singing that song. Because I never even heard it until a few weeks ago. I'm into Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Dean Martin, Pink Floyd, Creedence Clearwater Revival, and every now and then, Wonder. I'll play Groupie by any stretch of the imagination. And this is not an easy song to try and comprehend what's actually going on and what the intention was. I listened to it multiple times. I tried to read up on what it might have meant. And I came to the conclusion, in some ways, the reason for the lyrics of the song is because one line rhymed with the next. But there's real no connection. But in digging further, this song is one artist's attempt to describe the chaotic state of our world and the various pressure points and challenges of life, and he's trying to make sense of it. Trying to find a way through that doesn't produce destruction or an irreversible mistake. And so this song reflects the pulsating ache of every human heart to find hope in the midst of this world. To make sense of the world. To be able to experience the good even in the heartaches. It's one artist's attempt, then, to respond to the realities of life in this culture. So this is a song about how to live in today's world. And this is something I care deeply about for myself, for my children, and for us. And that's why this song was chosen. How do followers of Jesus respond to the culture we now in this culture and be a compelling witness for Jesus? How do we as a congregation cultivate a community that is, in the words of one author, an alternative to the world, but not in a world-denying way? And I can hardly think of a more important topic. And to give you a bit of a heads up on this, this fall we're going to dedicate a whole series to this topic. And so today is really just an appetizer. Over the last several years, the importance of this, and the need to work hard to understand our calling in this culture has occupied my and many conversations. We've had numerous conversations about this very issue on our elder board and in other settings. So that's a bit of a setup. If you'd stand 
for our scripture reading. Today's scripture reading is from Colossians chapter 4. I'm only going to read verses 5 and 6. It's really easy to remember. Colossians 4, 5 through 6. I say this because this is a great couple of, these are a great couple of verses to read with your children, to read in your families, and to talk about in interactions with your families and with friends uh, in terms of how, how do we do this? How do we putting these in each of the first Sundays of the month to kind of keep the conversation going? You can look at that and perhaps talk about it with families and friends. So Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Like all of Paul's letters, this one was written to a church, and so when he refers to outsiders, he uses this word, he's talking about people outside the faith and outside the church, life who are not followers of Jesus. And he's giving really basic guidance for how we are to interact with people outside the faith. He's offering a simple plan for how we are to respond to the culture. And this topic is so crucially important because our response and our interaction to the culture reflects our beliefs about God and about who He is. Put it this way, we authenticate God through our reactions and interactions with the culture. And I doubt this is going to come as a surprise. These are doing a very good job with this. If I were an outsider, again, to use Paul's word, and I was trying to construct an understanding of God based on what I observed in his followers, I would conclude that one of God's primary attributes is anger. And a close second is contempt or maybe disdain. I don't think I would conclude that one of God's primary attributes is love. And all of that way his people are responding to culture. Well, in this short passage, just a couple verses, Paul gives three simple, positive, and here's the key, pressure-free ways to act and react and interact with the culture. So here we go. Way number one is to act, interact, and react wisely. He says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Think about the people that we interact with, and even the every act, everyday activities that require interaction with total strangers. In this verse, Paul tells us to act and react and respond wisely to the people we interact with who are, again, using his word, outside. He's stating the obvious, but not in today's culture. Set his instruction to act wisely in contrast to reacting angrily or indignantly, which is the all-too-common Christian response these days to culture, whether in person, face-to-face, in general, or on social media. Wisdom is knowing what to do when there is no clear, strict rule or guidance. This is crucially important. 
To be wise means we know what to do even when there's not a rule to follow. And that means we know what to do most of the time. Because most of the time, the situation is not textbook and therefore it isn't covered under a clearly defined for some new shoes. And I absolutely despise this process. Figuring out which ones to get, which ones look decent. My, I have no confidence in my ability to assess these things. No wisdom, you might say, on this. So I did what any middle-aged guy would do. I sent a picture of shoes I was considering to my two daughters and to my wife. And this is the text exchanged verbatim with my two daughters. This is me. I need answers quick after I sent the picture because I was at the store. I said, I need answers quick. Abby, weigh in. This is Abby. Kind of grandpa shoes. <laughs> Izzy responds, no, they aren't. These were loafers I was looking at. Get some with laces, but leather like that. Me. They're loafers, Abby. Everyone wears loafers. I've had lace ones. Those are old. Abby. Loafers equals grandpa. Me, I disagree. Hipsters wear loafers, and then it went south from there, so I won't bore you. Not that that wasn't already far south, but you get the point. And so much of life, it seems to me, is like this. It's not as clear-cut as we would like. There's no section labeled old guy shoes. And then one over here, old guy trying to look young shoes. So wisdom is needed. So being wise in our actions and in our interactions means our intuition and our instincts are being formed by Jesus' spirit so we know what to say and when to say it and how to say it and what to do and when to do it in a wide variety of situations. See, being wise, as Paul is talking about, is very different from being right. In my view, Christians are too obsessed with being right and winning arguments instead of wisely relating and responding to those who are outside the faith. It's really difficult, maybe even impossible, to be wise when we are angry. And too often these days, Christians are angry at the culture or even disgusted with the culture. And you know something? The culture knows this. And sometimes people push back at this. They say, well, look at how the culture mistreats Christians. Wisdom says, and this is straight out of the Bible, do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but repay evil with blessing. Do not retaliate. That's wisdom. And Jesus is the supreme example of knowing when to speak and when to listen, knowing what to say and how exactly to say it, knowing when to comfort and when to confront, when to stay and when to walk away. Paul says, make the most of every opportunity. Interesting phrase. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders and make the most of every opportunity. And I wonder if some of us feel pressure in that statement. Like, we better not miss the chance to tell someone about Jesus. Make the most of every opportunity. Don't blow it, is what we hear, and I think it unwise. It is common today for Christians to react 
to various cultural shifts and emerging ideologies thought to be incompatible with the Christian view, and we react by shaking our heads, or we get mad, or we are disgusted, and in the process, we miss the real people around us who have real stories to tell, and this is unwise. God is at work in those around us, and he sometimes gets people's attention through our relationship with them so we can relate. We don't have a checklist to complete. We're not going to be graded on our performance. You seize the opportunity 48 times, but you fail to seize it 38 times. I wonder if making the most of every opportunity then, in this time, in this culture, might mean, as followers of Jesus, talking less and listening more. I wonder if it might mean asking more questions and giving fewer answers. Secondly, we are to act, react, and interact graciously with those outside. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. And this is just incredibly timely teaching given the context in which we live and given the propensity people have to scream and shout and demean and belittle in person and maybe even more so on social media. All in an effort to win an argument and make a point. So for a moment, revisit the people you interact with on a regular basis, that you cross paths with in daily life. Their names, and you know this like I do, there is redemptive power in words and in conversations that are full of grace and seasoned with salt. Especially when these days, words and conversations are so routinely full of contempt and seasoned with hostility. Stanley Hauerwas is a cultural observer and a theologian, and he wrote this, and this is on the screen, and I would urge you to read it and read it again. The first task of the church is not to make the world more just, rather the world the world. I absolutely love this. And if I understand his profound statement, he is saying the first task we have as his people in this world is to live and act in better ways than what we see in the culture. The first order of business is to be shaped by God's spirit so we actually are refreshingly different and so people can see this difference. In other words, we don't march to the same drum. And the first order of business is to march to the drum we march to and show it to be different than the typical one. Conversations that are full of grace and seasoned with salt create space for people to be where they are and be who they are. These kinds of conversations make room for the other person to question spacious conversations where the pressure is low. Let me put it this way. When you are in a gracious conversation, you know it, even if you can't describe it or explain it. And when you are in a non-gracious conversation, you know it, even if you can't explain it or describe it. A couple of years ago, I began meeting with a guy who is outside the church, to put it Paul's way. He's trying to discover what faith means in his life, 
And in his situation, some life stuff happened, pretty serious life stuff. And through a series of events, mutual friends connected us, and he and I started meeting to process and navigate the challenges he was facing. And this has been a prime setting for conversation that is full of grace and sees no forced religious discussions because some invisible clock is ticking. No condemnation. In the natural course of working through some of the challenges and in our many conversations, we have talked about faith and we have talked about God. And there have been times where it has seemed right for me to be crystal clear to him about the reality of Jesus and Jesus' desire for relationship. But it is not my job to convince this guy about the truth of Jesus. That would be the spirit of God's job. It's my job to speak. He is not my project. He's my friend. And these two verses are my calling in this relationship. See, we are living in a time where anger and condemnation and contempt is everywhere. It is everywhere. The tension is thick and social media makes it thicker. Social media is a breeding ground for unaccountable anger, unchecked contempt, and the demeaning treatment of those who disagree. Now, grace is not opposed to passion, but grace is opposed to dismissive contempt. And as followers of Jesus, we all have firsthand experience with God's amazing grace and with his spacious and undeserved favor toward us. His enabling power, his inexhaustible patience. We have experience with his grace, and each one of us is now a steward of this grace. Naaman is so central in shaping the DNA. The church is shaped by the grace of God. We are shaped by the grace of God. So to say we are a follower of Jesus means, not in theory, but in reality, it means we, each of us individually, and we collectively as a community, humbly recognize how broken and how sinful we are and how desperately we need God's help and we need his ongoing restoration. We are lost in an ocean of self-absorption without him. And as his followers who come to this table, we know this grace in our bones. We've experienced this. God reached out his long arm and he gently pulled us back. We know this. And here's the point. This same grace is what we are to offer the world. This scandalous grace is what we are to offer the world. So the instinct to scornfully judge and exclude and reject is not the way of Jesus. In the words of one writer, we as Christians and as a church must abandon the stance of proud arrogance against the world. See, we all have people in our lives that we interact with every single day. And one simple way to demonstrate the alternative way of Jesus is to interact and respond in ways that are full of grace or on social media. 
we make space in our interactions for the other person to be right where they are. Especially when we don't agree with where they are or we don't agree with their perspective or their approach. And thirdly, Paul is teaching here that we act, react, and interact relationally with those outside. Implied in these two verses in Colossians chapter 4 is a relational context where we are interacting with others and we are conversing with them and we are responding to them. It's a face-to-face deal. Jesus modeled incarnation, Colossians from prison and also Ephesians, Philippians and Philemon. And in Philippians chapter 1, he says that what has happened to him, namely being put in prison, has advanced the gospel because it has given him a chance to interact with the Roman guards who are watching over him. Paul is a proponent of skin-on-skin mission, face-to-face, relational, real interaction with real people. And so the people we are around each day and each week, the people we encounter in the everyday, noticing them, being with them, building relationship, skin-on-skin, one of the temptations we must vigorously resist is the impulse to retreat and isolate from the culture because we are so afraid of it, or relate to the culture primarily through social media, or settle for winning ideological debates and arguments, but forgetting the real people right near us. See, the question is, who is in your everyday spaces that God has laid on your heart? And very real person, not very long ago, the importance of people over ideology. The importance of relationship hit me in a profoundly significant way that I don't imagine I'm ever going to forget. I was in a conversation, and in particular, the issue of illegal entry into our country. And there was this ferocious passion and opinion in the discussion. There was wild-eyed certainty about what should and should not happen. The conversation dripped with judgment and contempt. And here's the thing. The entire time this conversation was happening in this group, just a few steps away, closer than I am to this table, well within earshot, a Hispanic guy was working. Now, I have no idea of his situation, of his story, which is exactly the point. I have no idea about his story or situation, but I watched this unfold right in front of me. Ideology and opinion blinded everyone to the real person who was just a few feet away. It's like the guy didn't even exist. When he finished his work, out of pure shame, not a speck of heroism in this, out of pure shame, I followed him to his car, and I apologized to him for the pathetic experience he had just endured. See, there are people in our lives, they don't need our ideology, they don't need another social media post, they need us, incarnated. Real flesh and blood, eye to eye, face to face. They need real relationship with someone who can journey with them and help them make sense of all this 
and possibly even discover hope in Jesus Christ. What makes the church an alternative community? Many things. One is this idea of relationship with the living God. Another is this shared reality of brokenness we all have. We recognize it. This deep, practical, real, human. What marks us as an alternative community are differences that are brought together and unified in the person of Jesus. What marks us as an alternative community? What we're about to do. Come to this table to remember who we are and remember our desperation and remember that Jesus is our king and we are united in him. What marks us as an alternative community? The cross of Jesus Christ, his sacrificial death, the love he poured out for the sake of others, most of whom could have cared less. And that is why we come to this table. We practice open communion here. Followers, we invite you to celebrate this meal with us. The way it will work is in a moment, ushers will come to the back of each of the four sections and they'll dismiss, starting from the back row, you'll go out to your right. You'll come down to the front. Someone will be holding a loaf of bread, rip a piece off of it, and then receive the cup. You can eat and drink right away or continue across the front of your section and up the aisle and return to your seat. There will be prayer teams, one back there and one back there. And I urge you, if you've come here today with any burden you're carrying or with knowledge of a burden someone else is carrying, physical healing, emotional stuff, relational stuff, job stuff, I urge you to go for you. I would also encourage us to be thinking about what ministry can we give to one another during this time. There are occasions in these settings where there's a sense stirring within us to go and say such and such to so and so, or go and pray for someone. And my encouragement to you is, when you feel that, when you sense that, just go do it, don't second guess it. Our communion liturgy will be on the screens to prepare us to come to the table. So I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and take a moment of silence to prepare yourself as we get ready to come to the table.